Welcome to the City Collective Church Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that in today's message, you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. going to be walking through the gospel according to John. We're keeping it simple in, in our, our branding and, and what we're going to be engaging with. We're going to be walking through the, the gospel itself. And I'm really excited about it because of what it presents to us, the, the, the journey that it, it shows to us, but also what we can learn in the midst of what John is trying to tell us in his un, unique iteration of the story of Christ. Uh, you'll notice that the byline talks about spiritual practices, and this is one of the things that even Steve talked about in his testimony, things like silence and solitude, seeking out uh, community, and, and making sure that those are primary elements of his life. And I think in the gospel, according to John, these spiritual practices are presented, maybe not explicitly sometimes, when we think of practices, we think of what? We think of prayer, reading the Bible, we think about those type of practical things that we do for our own edification and our own our our own growth in many ways, but there is a, a more expansive experience, I would say, of the spiritual practices that we can engage with. We, we're going to ask some of these questions. And we're not spending time on, on spiritual practices to focus on, on the things that we can do on re-energizing legalism or, or work righteousness or the idea of what can I do to get God to love me, but we recognize that that approach is, is exhausting, it's toxic, and it's not reflective of Jesus. But we know with certainty that we're never going to be loved less or more by God. His, his love and acceptance of us is already full and complete. So from that platform of understanding, we begin from that place of being already accepted and loved and then we have our focus of spiritual practices to fully experience newfound life in Jesus. And so this is what we're going to be engaging with over the course of this series. It's often called uh, apprenticeship with Jesus, and it's the beginning of a lifelong spiritual journey. So we're going to start at the very beginning of John. We're going to read it together this morning. Uh, beginning of John, pun intended, reading together the prologue, John 1, starting at verse 1. You can follow along on the screen. And it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is a different John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to that light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And so we'll stop there for the prologue. Uh, it, the Entire first chapter is beautiful. I would highly encourage as we're going through the series to take time throughout your week and engage in the scripture. That's John chapter 1. Perhaps you've heard this phrase, uh, more than meets the eye. 
I think we can apply that to a lot of different scenarios. Uh, when we were first considering moving out here to the Lower Mainland and, and starting the church, we, we didn't really know much about the area. Uh, for myself, I had never really spent time in particular in Vancouver or the Lower Mainland. And I had this idea, and I think when you come from other places, you've got an idea of what the place is, right? You think of the city of Vancouver, you think of the skyscrapers, you think of, of the, the more occupied areas, the higher rent areas of the Lower Mainland, perhaps. And so I got on a plane and I came out here and uh, I started walking and getting to know the area. And it was, it was beautiful and it was wonderful. And I had the areas that I was more feeling like that was my preference, but I kept walking, kept feeling it out. And then in the process of a few days, we uh, ended up out here in little old Langley. And uh, the phrase more than meets the eye is, is akin to that, that moment of feeling as if this was the place where God wanted us to be. Because <laughs> in a lot of ways, it, it, it lives up to that name for the city where, where town meets country. And so you, you kind of say to yourself, what am I, city brown boy, doing out here in little old Langley? And why is this place? Well, there was more that meets the eye. We learned really quickly that it, it actually ended up being a place that we, we built relationship quickly. We learned even statistically that there was families that were making their home out here in the lower mainland, specifically in Langley at, at the highest rates out of all the boroughs. And, and there was more than meets the eye. And that, that phrase was akin to that. And I think that even the idea of more than meets the eye uh, it is reflective throughout our, our history around us. Even someone, famous individuals, someone like Rosa Parks, uh, someone that we know for what she has done. But on her, on her 90, in her 92nd year, she passed, and this was in 2005. And the, the flood of obituaries that came in for her recalled her as this, called her soft-spoken, sweet, small in stature. They said she was timid and shy, but had the courage of a lion. And they were full of phrases like radical humility and quiet fortitude. There was more that meets the eye with someone like Rosa Parks. There, there's a, a Dutch painter uh, who goes by Rem, the name Rembrandt. And his work, he came to dominate the Dutch golden age spanning the 17th century in the Netherlands. Uh, and his, his work, in many ways, is a representation of more than meets the eye. Uh, he was famous for his artistic achievements, including portraits of his contemporaries, biblical scenes, uh, and he's recognized as one of the greatest etchers of all time. In the 1630s, Rembrandt, he had this technique that used a dramatic use of light and shade. And it was a way of describing faces with patterns of, of light and shade. And it allowed the canvases that he painted upon to speak in a more dramatic way. There was more than meets the eye. And he painted in a style in particular that had, had layers to it. He had this technique that almost created this 3D effect well ahead of his time that, that brought the image to life. And he manipulated light and shade even within his painting in, his, in a way to emphasize the hands and the faces of the subjects. And the result of it was, was paintings that were intimate. And they were tender portraits 
which had a sense of, of, of immediacy, and they created the impression of really knowing the person behind the portrait. One in particular I wanted to show you this morning, and it's painted in 1633, and it's called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, and it depicts the miracle of Jesus calming the storm. And this is uh, Rembrandt's only painting in, in a seascape. So the episode that he's put to the canvas is an is one from the New Testament. It would have been familiar to a lot of people in his time, would have been familiar and meaningful to him. And when you, when you look at it, I would encourage you to just, just take a peek at the, the dramatic tension that he kind of creates within it. The, the areas of light and shade that he, he uses to tell a story through a single image. And Many of us have said that it provides a new and startling interpretation of the story itself. Rembrandt, he, he brought more than simply meets the eye, even when engaging with a story such as this. In my experience, and I think in what we've seen in history, I think it's shown us that more often than not, there is more than meets the eye in an emotional level, in a spiritual level, and perhaps you'd even say that about yourself, that if someone was to get to know you, that there's more than meets the eye. Even your family members that know you particularly well, you would say there's, there's more underneath the surface. When we consider the Gospel of John, there, there is a, a style and a passion that is provided by the author. And I think the, one of the problems that I feel for myself, and we talked about it a couple weeks ago, uh, holy discontent that I feel even for us as a, as a church community, is this lack of, of passion and urgency for what we believe is a relationship with Christ. And, and a possible reason for this might be that we have stopped seeing the beauty of Christ. We've almost made it too simple. We've only decided to look at the surface. The Gospel of John is a text that constantly creates the impression that there's more going on than what is immediately seen. I think the author, he is brilliant. He deploys the power of metaphor and symbols in this masterful way. Richard Hayes says this. He says, if Luke, for example, is the master of the deft, fleeting illusion, John is the master of the carefully framed, luminous image that shines brilliantly against a dark canvas and lingers in the imagination. John's narrative technique is analogous to the visual artistry of Rembrandt's portraits. There's layers to this. Each story has been coordinated with other parts of the narrative so that stories acquire more layers of meaning than the surface one. And John, he's even a master of irony. What one person is saying, it constantly isn't exactly what maybe they're intending. And sometimes it's even the opposite. And Jesus is even constantly un misunderstood within the Gospel of John. And it provides a, a ground for us to question the true meaning of his words. The book was written not only for first-time readers, but for us to study it in order to yield this cornucopia of meaning. So this opening prologue, 
when we read it, and I, I hope that you caught it even as we were reading it together, it feels complex. Uh, it feels like there's a lot of different things going on. And, and it doesn't feel incredibly clear. I think the way that you begin to say something matters. If I were to open up my talk today uh, with something along the lines of, I have a dream. I think it, it, it draws your attention to perhaps the most known speech from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., how you start something matters. In, in that speech in particular from Dr. King, it's this powerful declaration, a dream of, of all people, of all races and colors and backgrounds, sharing in, in an America marked by freedom and democracy. And a specific part of it has been popularized, but that's not how he actually started that speech. I had a, a poster of this speech actually up on my wall growing up. This isn't just because, I'm, I'm not making this up just to make the analogy work. Um, my parents can, <laughs> can confirm. It was on the wall growing up. And at the beginning of this speech, it didn't say, I have a dream. It actually has Dr. King making the statement five score years ago. It says five score years ago. And this statement is an illusion to the event that happened 100 years prior. Dr. King, he gave the speech in 1963, and 100 years prior, we see Abraham Lincoln give the Emancipation Proclamation, declaring that all persons held as slaves should be made free moving forward. And in that Gettysburg Address from Abraham Lincoln, he opens with the phrase, four score and seven years ago. See, this is the brilliance of Dr. King in that moment. He opens with a phrase that connected with an opening phrase. Just like if I was to say, I have a dream, it would connect to Dr. King's speech and it would have meaning and connotation. And this was the same thing that Dr. King does. And this is the same thing that the gospel writer John does. In his prologue, he says, in the beginning. And this is where he starts. And it's a call out to Genesis 1-1, one, one, in the beginning. John leads with that same brilliance. And he starts in the beginning, pointing to the very first verse of Genesis. And in the storyline of Genesis, in the beginning is God. And what John wants to claim right off the bat, not just what we see, but beneath the surface of it all, is that you are reading a story that's equally as significant as the beginning of the world. As the, as the story of creation. In fact, the story I'm about to relay to you is the fulfillment of creation. He wants to introduce you to the person of Jesus. But he wants you to understand this is the beginning of it all in a brand new way. It's, it's brilliant actually. So let's reread this in, in John 1, 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. John is creating right off the bat 
in this sentence space in our brain for an utterly unique being, the word who became flesh. In, in verse 14, it would articulate it as such. The word who was in the beginning, the word who was with God and was God, who would become human, Jesus. John is establishing the uniqueness and unity of Jesus as God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And so there he was in the beginning of it all, and he came to be in the flesh with us. And so John is laying this foundation for us as we, as we go on this journey. That this story is an important one. And he was there at the beginning just as much as he's here with us now. And then what John does is he does what you do when you love something. And you begin to tell people about it. In such a way that it's more than just a list of nice things. It's the articulation of how this love has captured your heart to such a degree that it has shaped your life. What's really interesting is John does not even mention the name Jesus until verse 29 in, in chapter 1. But yet he is talking about him from the very beginning of this chapter. Uh, Tim Mackey, he says that if this prologue was a Wikipedia page, uh, it would be littered with hyperlinks. It would be covered in, in these blue hyperlinks that if you were a Hebrew Bible scholar like the apostles, you would see these words pop up and it would take you to a whole new page of understanding. So this is taking place over and over again. So when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, uh, there's a lot that's being said for us to understand. So we're going to go through a couple of these different things that the gospel writer wants us to understand in, as he's saying who Jesus is. So the statement in the beginning is, is pointing to Genesis in the beginning. But it's also pointing to Proverbs 8. Uh, Proverbs has the wisdom depicted poetically as a character, Lady Wisdom. And it talks about herself as being in the beginning and being an attribute by which God formed the universe. So this call to in the beginning is also a manner in which John is saying that Jesus had wisdom working with him in his story. And to a biblically literate Jewish audience, John is using Proverbs 8 and he's applying it to this grid of who Jesus is as God. And then why does, why does John use the, the word, word in particular, the, the pre-existent Jesus in Genesis? Why, why is word used? Well, in, in the story of Genesis, Logos, he speaks. And there are ten acts of speaking in Genesis, and they're the means by which God brings order to the chaos. So an attribute of God that we see in Jesus is wisdom. An attribute of God that we see in Jesus is a creator, that from his words life comes. 
And then in Psalm 33, it says that by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth. And the breath in his mouth, it, it can be translated as, as ruah, which is actually can be translated as spirit. So spirit is at work. So it's Jesus, the, the creator, Jesus full of wisdom, Jesus full of the spirit, and Jesus full of love that is presented to us because... The, Everything God does is an expression of his love. He loves righteousness. He loves justice. He loves reconciliation and wholeness. And he loves to create. And the earth coming into being through his word, it means that the earth is an expression of his love. John is establishing the characteristics of Christ for the reader from the very beginning. Wisdom, creator, spirit, lover. And maybe it isn't said explicitly, but this is our Rembrandt. These are the layers of paint that are being put on our, our canvas for us to see in 3D who Jesus might actually be. There's more than meets the eye. And these ideas are meant to be like these pieces of mental furniture for us, especially as we go through these, this series. I want you to remember when we hear things like word connected to logos and connected to the idea of formation and creation, when you hear breath, think of spirit and how spirit is working in and midst it all. When you hear in the beginning or, or with God, I want you to hear wisdom at work with Jesus. These are the, the, the signposts that John is laying in this opening prayer prologue so that we can see Jesus in a way that he has come to see Jesus. When Jesus is breathing in all throughout the text, even in chapter 20, he breathes on his disciples. It's the spirit at work in the world. Are, are, you, are you with me? We're, we're opening up the text a little, and we're going to do this throughout the series. Uh, John doesn't want us to simply know that he loves Jesus. John is operating in a spiritual practice that I think that we often put to the wayside. John is responding to the revelation of God in his life. And he's declaring it to the people around him. He's not just saying that he loves Jesus but all the reasons why he does and why he believes that we should trust and love him too. This is a love letter written with incredible poetic artistry to be adored. And this continues in, in verse 4. He draws on the idea of life and light, and he puts them into the same equation, equation, life and light. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And notice how life is equated with light. Why do we need light? Well, because things are dark. And the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness can't overcome it. The darkness is trying to envelop or overtake the light. This is what's taking place. There is a conflict all around us between light and dark. This is a significant conflict. And even in Genesis 1, what happens? God invades the darkness with his light and with his word. Genesis 1, verses 3 and 4. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And then in John 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see what's taking place here. The beginning was where creation and the world was formed is reflected again in something new being formed in the person of Jesus. 
And for some of us, we need to hear this this morning, that there is constant renewal and formation when Jesus enters the picture. That which was formed that seems lost and too far gone and broken, when Jesus comes into the picture, it is in the beginning all over again. It is, it is a freshness. It is new life that is poured in because it is light in the darkness and light is life. And if light is life, then darkness is death. And this is the battle at play in the person of Jesus. That he brings life into the darkness to overcome death. And this is the promise that is given to us at the very beginning of this story. John wants us to use our instinctual truths. We all felt it today and yesterday. We feel it out here in the lower mainland. Let's be honest. Whenever the sun is out, we like the place a little bit more. Light and sunshine and just being able to enjoy it, it's almost like we can't even fully articulate the why. But there is this beauty to it when we can just be in the light. There is an instinctual truth to that. Because to be in the light is to actually experience life. And this is the story that is being told through the Gospel of John. The light has broken through the darkness. And the life that you are desiring is possible despite the death that you might have experienced in your story. There is depth to, the, to this painting like a Rembrandt. And this is an important foundation for us to lay. Because why does this matter? Well, one of the things, like we talked about, we're engaging with is spiritual practices and the need to actually have them be part of our story. And one of the practices I would love for us to engage with as a church is recognizing where God is already working and joining in. This is a spiritual practice. So I mentioned that John doesn't actually mention Jesus until verse 29. John the Baptist, he says in verse 29, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is an invitation to us. God is already at work in the world around us. And since the beginning, God has been renewing the world and making it new. And since the beginning, the light has been shining into the darkness. And since the beginning, Jesus was present. Yet John, in the opening dialogue, doesn't mention the name of Jesus. And he is waiting for the one to come to be a witness to the light, to declare the light. The invitation that's being made to the reader, to you, and to I is Can we see how God is already at work around us and how he's already moved into the neighborhood and how he wants us to receive his light? And can we be the ones who say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Can we actually have that response? One of the greatest hesitations towards evangelism is rooted in this fallacy that God shows up when I show up. That is to say, we somehow have come to believe that it is only when I do something that someone can discover God. 
Now, this isn't an, this isn't an invitation to wash our hands of all, all practice or responsibility, but this is to flip the script. The, the gift of evangelism and to tell people about who Jesus is, is to live in the truth that God is already at work. And our words, our actions, our heart for people is a response to this revelation. The words in the Gospel of John is not him trying to convince anybody in this opening prologue. He's saying, I have experienced this revelation of who God is. I don't even need to declare his name, but he is wisdom. He is a creator. He is love. And I want you to know him. This is what it is to be a follower of Christ and to engage in the spiritual practice of Responding to the good news by declaring that good news. The lie of the enemy would have us believe that God is not already at work in the world. And the practices of culture would have us too busy to stop and smell the roses. Do you appreciate what you have? Do you see the manners in which God has has blessed your life and cared for those around you? We grieve the brokenness, but we have to also see the manner in which God is blessing the world around us. When you have a great relationship, people know it. This is a practical application. When someone shows up and they're in a great relationship, they just start dating someone and you're like, man, you got that little extra hop on your step. They don't even have to say anything. Demonstrating the kingdom of God is often more ordinary and everyday than we expect. Most of evangelism in the early church was simply people living radically different and deeply good lives. And scores of people being drawn into the beauty of the gospel and millions of people found Jesus so compelling that they were willing to die for him. Do we see Jesus in such a light? We can look at the, the, the writing in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, but I want you to hear the heart and the passion. What if we were to capture that for ourselves? It's not just the Gospel writer that can have that passion for who Jesus is. It's you and I as followers of Jesus. We are, as the Scripture says, witnesses to the light. Because there is more than meets the eye. Could you put the picture of the, the Rembrandt back on the screen? There's more than meets the eye. And John is presenting something incredibly beautiful. I want you to look at this, this picture. I want you to see the, the play between light and dark. The triangle of light on the left and the triangle of darkness on the right. In an allegorical sense, the work it illustrates the power of nature and our helplessness in the force of it. But there are 12 disciples who are fishermen and are sailors. However, in this scene, they are powerless and they're exposed to the elements. They can barely hang on. 
And this picture, it depicts Jesus calming the waves of the sea. I don't know if you've done it already, but if you notice, there's actually 14 men aboard this ship. 12 disciples. And if you notice, there's, there's one individual on the left. He's, he's hanging off the side, and he's got his hat in his hand. And he's actually got the face of Rembrandt on him. There's a, the 14th individual on this boat is the painter himself. He painted himself into the story. He painted himself into this picture. Because he's, he said, for this story to truly come to life, I need to realize the simple truth that my Savior is in the boat of my life with me. And where's Jesus in this story? Is he, is he blazing light on the left side? Is, is he slowly descending from heaven? No. If you look carefully... On the right side of the boat, there's Jesus in the dark, calming the storm from the darkest point of it. There is a beautiful truth for us this morning. Where do we find Jesus in the painting? Not in the blazing light, but in the boat. In the darkness, the light in the darkness, never leaving, never forsaking, always rescuing, life defeating death. In the storm, Christ is found in the darkest point. And perhaps we need to hear this this morning, that there is more than meets the eye in your situation of brokenness. That in your, your current storm, all you can see is that the light seems so far away. Jesus must be over there where the light is. Jesus must be coming eventually. And the revelation that we see in this prologue of John, that in the beginning, from the start, never leaving, Jesus has been right there. And he's in the darkest point of the boat, calming the storm, not from a distance, but right beside you, right with you. What if we had a posture this morning, moving into this upcoming week, that we said that I'm going to start to see the world with this creative imagination that John had, that more than meets the eye? What would you do? I think we would ask more questions. I think we would have more grace. And I think that we would carry more hope. Because the gospel of John invites us to this place of hope and trust in Jesus. Not simply in the things that Jesus has done, but in who he is. Number one, we are witnesses to the light. And we need to make a renewed commitment and priority to have our stories of our lives be reflections of this truth. To declare that to those around us. And then number two, perhaps you feel like you're 
on that stormy boat and you're lost in the darkness. Death feels like it's at your doorstep. In Jesus, we see God that has always been the light that shines in the darkness. In Jesus, we find victory over sin and death. In Jesus, we feel freedom from guilt and from shame and from burdens of our actions. In Jesus, we're invited to place our hope and our trust in him who has always been and who will forever be pursuing you in the darkest moments. The boat is not going down. Your boat is not going down. Jesus is in the boat with you. And like Rembrandt painted himself onto that boat with Jesus, struggling, barely able to hold on, lost in the darkness, unable to see the light, let's hear this invitation this morning. That Jesus is here. That he's been there from the beginning. And he is that light in the darkness that we so desperately need. If you're here this morning. And you have a relationship with Jesus. And you feel as if that this is a part of your, your story. Wonderful. My challenge to you. A genuine practice of a follower of Christ is to have their life be a declaration of the revelation they have experienced for themselves. If you feel that it has simply come to a place of apathetic contentment, that is not all that is left for you. You are witnesses to the light. So declare that. And if you don't know this Jesus this morning, wherever you might be, Christ is in the boat with you and simply wants you to place your trust in him. So as we close in a moment of prayer, I would invite you to invite the one who is in that boat with you into your story. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the ways in which you have cared for us. Thank you that you were there in the beginning and that wherever we might find ourselves today, when you come into the picture, new beginnings are possible. We just pray that all of the truths of who you are that we find in the Gospel of John are ones that we start to actually fall in love with. May the love that is revealed through Jesus captivate our hearts and our minds and draw us closer to you. May we be witnesses to the light, not just in word, but in action. And wherever we might find ourselves in the storms of life, may we be comforted and given this incredible peace that we need. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it challenged, encouraged, and inspired you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.